Okie dokie. I'm the Revolvesman. That's probably true. I guess. <laughs> Never met the Revolvesman before. I'm not a Revolvesman. I'm, I'm the Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. Here to recap and review some Vertigo comics. And also, check out the dark side of DC. And we're going to start with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Which one of those three comic books were we supposed to read for this issue? Sandman. Oh. Well, all right. Let's we'll wing it. So in thirteen eighty nine, Jesse Custer. <laughs> By the way, I went to like an absurd amount of trouble trying to figure out what year this was, and then it turns out to just be like really obvious. It's like, oh, it's six hundred years. From the time that the fucking comic book came out. Right. But I'm all like, two popes. That makes it in the window. <laughs> that makes it somewhere between... No, no, there's a white 1378 board. and 1409. There's a white board with two popes? <laughs> two popes? Question mark? Okay, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Today we're covering Sandman number 13, Men of Good Fortune, written by Neil Gaiman. Guest artists this week, pencils by Michael Zuli and inks by Steve Parkhouse. I didn't recognize either of these guys' names. Do you know who they are? Not specifically, no. So they're just some dudes. Some well, dudes. they did a pretty good job. Some dudes who write some comedy. The art in this issue is not bad at all. But Michael Zuli and Steve Parkhouse are, as far as I can tell, just DC house guys. The cover is, as usual, by Dave McKeon, and we've got kind of a row of skeletons framed top and bottom by sort of a withered manuscript. And pieces of clocks. Yes. So the last we saw our hero, right? Sandman had walked out in the middle of a story arc called The Doll's House because he had a prior engagement. Yeah, he defeated the other Sandman and said, fuck you to Brute and Glob. Yeah, Brute and Glob were consigned to some sort of punishment in the dreaming. And then he said, fuck you to an innocent lady who had done nothing wrong. Specifically, he said that her child, which had just stayed long in the world of dreams, belonged to him. Which she didn't take well at all, but he didn't even stick around to gloat or soften the blow. He just had some place to be. Yeah, and apparently it's this filthy muck hut. <laughs> So we open in 1389 in a pub. We've got men talking about various issues of the day. Right. Some people are complaining about taxes. Some people are complaining that the end of the world's coming soon. And as we mentioned before, somebody mentions that there's two bloody popes and they're fighting like weasels in heat. So that tells you that this is taking place sometime during the Western Schism in the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. which was between 1378 and 1417. But... Nice. Right, but there was... For part of the Western Schism, there were three popes. So yeah, you can actually narrow it down further if there are only two. That puts it between 1378 and 1409. Where did the third pope come from? I don't actually really understand the whole thing in a lot of detail. We covered it in a history class I took a long-ass time ago. <laughs> but it has to do with a pope being elected who's, like, tougher on the cardinals, so the cardinals just elected a new one. Oh, they didn't like the result. 
And it, yeah, and it also has to do with the seat of the papacy being moved okay. um, from Avignon, where it had been for about a hundred years, back to Rome. Mm-hmm. Resulting in an Avignon Pope and a Rome Pope. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I also want to point out here, third poll tax in three years. What else could we have done? That the poll tax was a major issue put forth by Margaret Thatcher in her run for re-election in 1987, as we saw back in Hellblazer issue number three, going for it. Uh, The other thing I really liked about this page was when Morpheus and Death walk into, or dream and death, I should say, if I want to preserve the alliteration. Mm-hmm. When they walk into this bar, death is, she doesn't really look that much like herself, but you can tell immediately because she has the ankh on a chain around her neck. Yes, so death and dream walk into the bar. Death is sort of in a pretty convincing human guise, and dream is not at all. Yeah, he looks very pale, well, as he always does, and his eyes look strange. Yes, and Death apparently has dragged Dream along on this outing. I just think maybe it would be good for you to see them on their terms, instead of yours. And just as she's saying that, her name is on the lips of someone else. Look, I've seen Death. I lost half my village to the Black Death. I fought under Buckingham in Burgundy, and you know what a pig's ear that was. It's not like I don't know what Death is. Right, this is a red-haired man by the name of Hob Gadling. And that fought under Buckingham and Burgundy thing that it's going to become more clear is an allusion to the Hundred Years' War. Mm-hmm. England, France, they never really got along. <laughs> Took them a while to reconcile there. So Death orders a pair of penny ales for her and her brother, while Dream is drawn to a pair of men discussing stories in a corner. Geoffrey, I see no great wrong in writing in the Langue des Travalistes rather than La Belle Francaise, but English has its own forms of verse. Piers Plowman, that's what people want, not filthy tales in rhyme about pilgrims. Right, this is Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales, and he's chatting with a gent named Edmund. Now, at first I thought that this was Edmund Spencer, but the timing is completely wrong. Edmund Spencer was a couple of hundred years later. So... Just a coincidence that he happens to be named Edmund. Maybe it's Edmund Fitzgerald. Now I'm going to have to look up who that was. <laughs> I thought we had agreed not to replace our current project with a mouth music podcast. Oh. Well, I, we, we said not mouth organ. That, that would be the harmonic. Yeah. Okay, so this is what you want to do now? <laughs> it, could, it could be a new segment. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hobbes' friends are calling him a fool. Everybody dies. Well, hang on. I, I just no, want ahead. to point out that Chaucer's, Chaucer's retort to his friend Edmund, who is telling him not to be so bawdy, is, But I enjoy rhyming, Edmund, and I enjoy tavern tales told of an evening. That's awesome. <laughs> You're really glad to have read Chaucer say that? Yeah. Okay, so, meanwhile, Hobbes' friends are telling him he's a fool. Death comes to every man. Thirty years if he escaped the plague or the flux or the French. Sixty years with fortune and if God is willing. Then they put you in the ground to await the day of judgment. But Hobbes doesn't believe it. He says people don't actually have to die. They just do because people keep going along with it. 
The only reason people die is just because everyone does it. You all just go along with it. It's rubbish, Death. It's stupid. I don't want nothing to do with it. Morpheus has lost interest. He tries to change the subject. A delegation of fairy came to me last night. They are talking about abandoning this plane forever. Death says, shush, listen to the people. Incidentally, we are going to see a little bit more of what he is talking about a few issues from now. Her use of the term shush might be anachronistic here. That's likely, although death is anachronistic, as we are going to see a few more times in the series. She seems to be genuinely timeless. Oh, I see. Not just endless. Right, not just immortal, but outside of time. <laughs> that reminds me, a friend of mine was talking about this show she's going to tonight, and apparently she had heard this musician before on YouTube. Okay. But she says she's going to the show, and then she starts describing. She's like, it starts where he's playing this one song, and then like it segues into like a hip-hop version of another song. And I was like, you are describing to me a thing that has not happened yet. <laughs> Do you live outside time? <laughs> it is the Cisco. A linear existence. <laughs> so Death takes an interest in what Hob is saying. And we have a cool layout here. Oh no, you're skipping too far ahead. Oh. We gotta talk about this fucking look. <laughs> before we... before we... Death takes an interest. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, come on. <laughs> you gotta do that panel justice. <laughs> okay. Hob is going on about how... There's always a first time for everything. He might get lucky and be the person who doesn't die. Well, the person other than the Wandering Jew. Yes, they have mentioned that the Wandering Jew also doesn't die. No, it's rubbish, Death is. I mean, there's so much to do. So many things to see. People to drink with. Women to swive. You lot may die. I expect you will, because you're stupid. Not me, though. And then he gives a thumbs up. And to this, Death has an epic eyebrow raise. Yeah, this panel is fantastic as she looks over her ale at him and is, like, intrigued. Yeah, yeah, you can hear her go, hmm, <laughs> even though it's not in the dialogue. And then we have a great layout here as Death and Dream, both across the page from each other in panels set out from the image, both decide this is pretty interesting. Are you going to tell him, or am I? I shall. Very well, little brother. Very well. And death fades away as Dream goes up to Hob and makes a suggestion. Did I hear you say that you had no intention of ever dying? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a mugs game. I won't have any part of it. Then you must tell me what it's like. Let us meet here again, Robert Gadling, in this tavern of the White Horse, in a hundred years. Oh, he's got you there, Rob Gadling. I sting! I touch! Your game is cold, Ob! Right, Hob's friends think this is the funniest thing that they have ever heard. But Hob doesn't mind. Don't mind them. They're thick as King Dick of a lot of them. A hundred years' time on this day. I will see you in the year of our Lord, 1489, then. So that makes this 1389 mystery solved. Yeah, he's pretty good at math for a commoner. <laughs> yeah, he knows how to add one in the hundreds place. Yes. And so, after a shot of Morpheus leaving the tavern, we are in 1489. I thought you were saying that Hob took a shot of something called Morpheus. 
I don't think that this pub in 1389 has that selective a selection. Yeah. Well, if it's what it sounds like, which is a liquor that gives you weird dreams, then it's probably just tequila. <laughs> right. Which doesn't exist yet, I'm do we want, sure. Do we want to comment on the Tavern of the White Horse? Should we? Well, I live pretty near a Tavern of the White Horse, and it's got really good French onion soup. Oh, yeah, they have some awesome pizza. Too. Yeah, that's right, their pizza's great. Really good stuff. Tavern of the White Horse, folks. <laughs> it's called the White Horse Tavern. But Get into it. Hey, White Horse Tavern, send us some money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're in 1489, and there is still a tavern on this spot. How did you know? Hobbs says. Who are you? Yeah, he can't believe he's still alive. He asks why he isn't dead, and Morpheus replies, You have not died, I see. I also like that we find out in this scene that since the previous scene in 1389, chimneys and playing cards have been invented. Yeah, so this is a really cool bit, I thought, is that Hobb points out the conveniences of modern living. And as we have an old guy here, an old fogey, complaining that the new things are terrible and the old ways was best, Hobb disagrees completely and thinks that playing cards and chimneys and handkerchiefs are great and the world is just getting better and better. And this is a little bit of Neil Gaiman undertaking his favorite pastime, which is showing his homework. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he knows that these things were invented during the 15th century. Right. So Morpheus tells Hob, I came because I am interested. Death will not touch you, Hob Gadling, unless you truly desire it. Oh, he says desire? I wrote that down as, unless you truly deserve it. Hmm, that's a completely different story. And we're going to see in a little minute that Hob kind of works on that one. <laughs> he, he does his best to deserve it? Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he does take part in an evil on an enormous scale. Yeah. But it's not as if it was an evil that would have been stopped by his death. So I don't know if that's cause enough for her to intervene. Right. So Morpheus asks what Hob has been up to. He says soldiering and a little banditry. And he mentions that he started a new trade with a friend called printing, but it won't last. There will never be a real demand for it. And again, I think that's I think that's a little wink from Gaiman, who obviously, like, printing is his business, in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you still want to live? Oh, yes. A hundred years, then? Oh, yes. And we find ourselves in 1589, as Morpheus enters the tavern, and overhears a couple of gentlemen named... Kit Marlowe and Will Shaxbird talking yeah. about Kit's plays. Before we even see Shaxbird, Morpheus is like already dressed like Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, they get they get Morpheus into an appropriate period outfit in every single appearance, which makes a sort of sense. He's not as cut off from humanity as he might like to pretend. He certainly appears in people's dreams, so he's aware of what things are like for people at all times. Yeah. So and the art style's a little bit different in each century as well. Oh, you think so? I think so, and particularly as we get into the 18th century, that's going to become apparent. All right. So Shakespeare and Marlowe are talking about Marlowe's play, Dr. Faustus, which is seemed to me a bit of a callback to Hobb in the previous scene, asking if he had inadvertently made a bargain with the devil. Shakespeare himself has yet to write a play at this point. 
Right, and he suggests that the theme of the play, as he sees it, is that for one's art and one's dreams, one may consort and bargain with the darkest powers. As Hobbes sees Morpheus enter, he calls out to him. He is quite jolly and doing very well in life. He's invested in shipping. It's Sir Robert Gadlin now, and he has a wife and son, his first as far as he knows. This is what I always dreamed heaven would be like way back. It's safe to walk the streets. Enough food and good wine. Life is so rich. Meanwhile, on the other side of the room, Marlowe has read a play that Will wrote, and his advice is, it should be your last. Yeah, this is the opening lines from Henry VI, Part One, which I don't think is actually Shakespeare's first play, but artistic license. Oh, okay, okay. It's shown here as an example of terrible writing, and Shakespeare wishes he was good as he stands up and recites a passage from Dr. Faustus. I would give anything to have your gifts, or more than anything, to give men dreams that would live on long after I am dead. I'd bargain like your Faustus for that boon. And overhearing this, Morpheus goes over to him. Are you Will Shaxford? Aye, sir, have we met? We have, but men forget in waking hours. So Morpheus walks off talking with Will. Hob, meanwhile, says to himself, White bread! I would have killed for white bread two hundred years back. Come to think of it, I did a couple times. Everything to live for and nowhere to go but up. As a rich person, you should never say nowhere to go but up. That's just manifestly <laughs> not true. Tempting fate. Which brings us to 1689. Filthy, drunk, and in tatters, Hob is nearly turned away from the tavern of the White Horse before Dream intercedes. Dream is wearing the cutest tights. <laughs> you like that look on him? <laughs> In this scene. Oh yeah, he looks fabulous. But yeah, he looks beaten down and diseased and awful. Do you know how hungry a man can get if he doesn't die, but doesn't eat? I've hated every second of the last 80 years. Every bloody second, you know that? We learn that Hobbes' wife died in childbirth, his first son died in a tavern brawl, and he lost his fortune when he was almost burned as a witch after staying too long in one place. Yeah, he's been unlucky, and he's been a little lazy staying in one place for 40 years and not aging. Yeah, he mentioned previously that he had died and come back as his son before as a way of, as a way of maintaining continuity, but this time he apparently got a little careless. Still, though, Dream asks him, do you not seek the respite of death? And after a pause, Hob replies, Are you crazy? Death is a mug's game. i got so much to live for. Skip ahead another hundred years, and we find out that Hob is making a living at the slave trade. Right, his new trade is the triangle trade, shipping African slaves to the Americas and tobacco and rum back to Europe. He made the investment that started the whole thing a hundred years ago. Oh, so maybe it, maybe the implication is that without him it actually wouldn't exist. Maybe. And as he's talking about this, a blonde woman dressed in pink and white, very fancy clothes, enters. And note how a huge Hob and Morpheus suddenly appear, squatting over these tiny chairs with great big broad shoulders. Mm. Is this the different art style you were talking about? Right. And I saw King Lear yesterday. Mrs. Siddons as Goneril. The idiots had given it a happy ending. That will not last. The great stories will always return to their original forms. 
That lad Will Shakespeare. You did some kind of deal with him, didn't you? Perhaps. What kind of deal? His soul? Nothing so crude. Hob wants to know more about Morpheus. After 400 years, he doesn't even know his name. And that is when the blonde woman interjects. La! I might ask both of you that same question, gentlemen. Did and she really just say la? It's <laughs> <laughs> an appropriate way to begin a sentence in 1789, I guess. We've, we've really gone backwards as a society <laughs> since then. Oh, you wish we still could? Well, I mean, the, the, the no slavery thing is probably... <laughs> That's a big upgrade, yeah. Yeah, it's a big upgrade. She is accompanied by two hoodlums who, in her employ, hold knives to Hob and Dream's throats. Yeah, and we quickly figure out that she has figured them out. They tell a tale in these parts of London that the devil and the wandering Jew meet once in every century in a tavern. Two years past, sewn in the shirt of a dead man, I found me a nice description of their last meeting. This inn was named, likewise this day. And I really liked Morpheus and Hobbes' response here. I am no devil. And I'm not Jewish. The woman, it turns out, is Lady Johanna Constantine. I knew a Jack Constantine once. Cunning man. Got himself killed before you were born. Long time ago now. So she has much to learn, she thinks, from the devil and the wandering Jew, or whoever these two immortals are, and she orders them into her wagon. Well, but Dream is not interested in that. No. No, I think not. He blows a bit of sand in her direction. The thugs fall asleep while Joanna screams in horror at a ghost that she apparently got killed. She has old ghosts that I have shown to her. Her kind walk amidst the flotsam of lives they have sacrificed for their own purposes, till, friendless and alone, they needs must make the final sacrifice. That's a scarily good description of John Constantine's life. It seems that things don't really change generationally in the Constantine dynasty. For better or for worse... Joanna Constantine is very, very similar as a character to John Constantine. Yeah, but we'll be coming back to her later, I hope. Not in this issue. There's a little mention of that coming up. Hobb recalls how Jack Constantine got killed by Nightwalkers in a church in Essex. He also came to me for knowledge in Queen Bess's day, but he was a great deal more civil about asking for it. Bought me a drink first, for a start. Dream also takes this opportunity to encourage... Gadling to get out of the slavery business. It is a poor thing to enslave another. I would suggest you find yourself a different line of business. And I wonder if that's a bit of foreshadowing at the fact that Morpheus himself will be, in a manner of speaking, enslaved for roughly 70 years. Yeah, absolutely. He does not like captivity as a concept. And then it's 1889, and Morpheus, dressed like the Ripper himself walks toward the White Horse Tavern, and he is accosted by an old prostitute. <laughs> yeah. How'd you like to buy a gala drain a pail? Then maybe a quick bum dance. Give us a hard ride with your cream stick. I think not. <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly have to say no to. <laughs> she tried all her best tricks. She even called it a cream stick. <laughs> <laughs> Most people would have been so interested to find out what that was that they probably would have said yes. <laughs> oh, I, thought, I, thought, I thought maybe we were going to the confectionery. <laughs> this is not what I expected. And so he makes his way into the tavern where Hob is waiting for him. 
This area has really gone downhill, he says. The tavern, which was so fancy that it had a private room for them a hundred years ago, is now a working-class bar again. Don't want to repeat of last time's mess, do we? He says, referring to Constantine. Right, it turns out he started coming here a month ago to just accustom the locals to him so that they don't think that he's some kind of weird immortal who's coming here once every hundred years. And at his mention, Morpheus says that he saw Joanna again. Indeed, she undertook to fulfill a task for me, and succeeded admirably, I might add. Hobb is interested in this. He says, I've noticed I'm not the only one who doesn't die. There's a bloke calls himself Blood I've met a half dozen times now, although he doesn't always remember me. And there's Mad Hetty, down on Old Compton Street, been there a hundred years at least. To my knowledge, Mad is a coot, but she isn't going to die. That's a capricious thing, isn't it? Yes. Yes, she is. And by the way, Blood refers to Jason Blood, who is the human alter ego of Etrigan the Demon. Oh, I was wondering about that. He's a Camelot. Well done. He's a Camelot knight who had Etrigan placed inside him by Merlin himself, I believe. Incidentally, here's a piece of trivia about Etrigan the Demon we didn't mention in our previous encounters with the character. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was in our last episode. Yeah, that's right. No, he was in our episode before last. Our last yeah, episode he was, was He was in our last Hellblazer episode when he was watching Abby Holland and Swamp Thing have sex. <laughs> Etrigan is actually a visage of a demon that Jack Kirby saw in a Prince Valiant comic strip when Prince Valiant disguised himself as a demon. So his appearance was actually created by Hal Foster. Hal Foster's the guy that draws Prince Valiant? Yeah. Does he write it too? I think he used to. I see. I want to mention one more thing. As they mentioned death, if you look back at 1589 and 1689, there was a woman observing the meetings between Morpheus and Hob Gadling. She has apparently lost interest by now, but for a while, perhaps death kept tabs on these meetings as well. Are you talking about the woman with the mask here? Yes. She has a mask and a mole in 1689. And there's a flirtatious waitress in 1589. Oh, you think that's her? It could be just a woman. She's definitely prominent in the art as she passes behind Morpheus here and then crosses over to Shaxford. That could be just a clever way of calling our attention to Shaxford. Yeah, it could be. Anyway, I definitely got the impression that Death is interested in this for a while, but her interest tapers off before Dreams does. Fair enough. So, anyway, at this point, Hob lays out a theory for Dream, and it's a theory about Dream. You know, I think I know why we meet here century after century. It's not because you want to see what happens when a man don't die. You've seen what happens. I doubt I'm any wiser than I was 500 years back. I'm older. I've been up, been down, and been up again. Have I learned a lot? I've learned from my mistakes, but I've had more time to commit more mistakes. You were right about the slave trade. I can never make restitution for that. But, listen, I've seen people, and they don't change. Not in the important things. I doubt I'll ever seek death. You observed all that, but you knew it from the start. I think you're here for something else. And what might that be? Friendship. I think you're lonely. Morpheus is incensed at this. How dare Hobbes suggest that he's lonely, that he needs any kind of mortal companionship. And he gathers his hat and storms out of the bar. I would point out that in uh, standing up from his seat... He is so pissed off that he knocks over both his drink and his chair. Yeah. 
But as he storms out, Hob follows with a suggestion. Tell you what, I'll be here in a hundred years' time. If you're here then too, it'll be because we're friends. No other reason. Right? Right? 1989. He looks 80s as fuck. Yeah. The White Horse is now a trendy upscale bar, and Hob is wearing a nice blue suit. Around him, snatches of dialogue can be heard. Repeats of jokes, complaints, and politics just the same as they were centuries ago. The poll tax. The death of the labor movement. The, the end of the world. And then Hob looks up. I... I wasn't sure you'd be coming. Really? I have always heard that it was impolite to keep one's friends waiting. Would you like a drink? And it's Morpheus. Black trench coat and punk hair. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool ending. And it's it's good to see Morpheus be a little bit of a good guy every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. So this story engages with a couple of the recurring themes that we're going to see in this series. Hob talks about whether a person can change. As well, we see that Morpheus, as aloof as he ordinarily presents himself, does have some interest in human companionship. That he has feelings and thoughts much like those of a mortal, even though he's an anthropomorphic representation of a vast cosmic force. Yeah, and, you know, we saw that this is in the sort of intermission to a doll's house, or the doll's house. We also saw it in the intro to the doll's house, the mm -hmm. prologue, with Nada. That's right. That for all his... For all his cosmic nature, Morpheus is still interested in romance and love with mortals. Even though it's not given to mortals to marry the Endless. Yeah, right. So despite all his interest in the natural order of things, he also rebels against the natural orders of things at times. And it's nice to see that even though he has a great big godly ego, he is occasionally willing to bend and reveal that he really cares about something or someone. So I thought that that was a really fun issue. That's one of my favorites. It's almost all dialogue, but it's all good. Yeah, and it's dialogue in a series of shifting settings such that the art really gets to play a big role in it. Right, as the setting and the, and the costuming changes for each century that they pass through. Yeah. The... Cameo appearances by Chaucer and Shakespeare were a little bit fan y but I quite enjoyed them. For, for fans of uh, English literature from several centuries ago. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it almost seems like, you know, Doctor Who and whatnot. You can't, you can't go to the time period in which Shakespeare lived. Uh, <laughs> and, and not bump into the guy. <laughs> and not have him appear, yeah. <laughs> Well, a little bit of a spoiler, but we will find out a little more about Morpheus' deal with Shakespeare in a few issues. Okay, good to know. And, you know, it's cool, too, that Morpheus, as callously as he walked out of the previous story, he was at least maintaining a sort of human connection in doing so. Good thing that he got out of prison uh, before 1989. Yeah, that was convenient, isn't it, that his years of captivity don't cause him to miss this meeting. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the way that you write the story, is so that the current year is one of the hundred years. Right. So, are we going to see Hob again? Well, yeah, actually, we are. All right. Looking forward to seeing how that goes down. 
he's got a Gaiman's got a lot of threats going right now. You know, he's he's got a lot of characters that he's introduced and not quite paid off. We don't yet know what desire and despair are up to mm-hmm. exactly. We don't know who Gilbert is, although we may have our suspicions. Mm-hmm. And now he's introduced another new character. Yeah, with Hobb in particular, I think it's as much about what's cool, what Gaiman wanted to write about, as setting the stage for things to come. It's worth noting that, I'm not sure if he knew it yet, but when he originally started the series, it was intended to be around a 12-issue limited series. The Doll's House was basically conceived as the last story. Oh, that's interesting. I I knew that it was intended as a 12-issue limited series, but I just assumed, based on how slow he's been taking it, Mm -hmm. that he had already kind of thrown that to the wind. Mm -hmm. Another new character he introduced that isn't exactly a new character would be Joanna Constantine. Right. She's a sort of... ancestor of of John Constantine Hellblazer. Yeah, she's sort of a new character, but, you know, the identical ancestor as a form of time travel is a pretty well-worn trope. Yeah, and the idea that there are a couple of other Constantines and they work fairly similarly in stories is something that we're going to run into on occasion in Hellblazer as well. Awesome. So, in our next Sandman issue, we'll be seeing the Psycho Convention. (laughs) The Collectors. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. But first, it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This. Oh boy. This week... Sean is going to read American Vampire, number one, by Scott Snyder, Stephen King, and Raphael Albuquerque. Scott Snyder writes an awful lot of Batman, doesn't he? He does. That's what he's mainly known for. All right, here goes. And Stephen King is Stephen King, of course. Right. Inevitably. (laughs) In the uh, opening of the trade paperback, he goes ahead and praises his son Joe Hill's work on Lock and Key which I haven't read very little of, but it's a good comic book. That came up in this podcast before, right? Yeah. Actually, this is a trade hardcover, not a... Oh, you got me there. Not a trade paperback, but Sean has just read the first issue of American Vampire, written by Scott Snyder and Stephen King, with art by Raphael Albuquerque. This came out from Vertigo Comics a few years ago. So in the beginning here, we've got a couple of young women trying to make it in Hollywood in 1925, and they go to a party, which is run by some old Hollywood guys, and they're vampires, and they bite one of them. That was a mistake. All of which is a flashback, because we see at the beginning of that story that... The uh, car full of dead ladies. Right, it's a, it's a car full of, full of corpses, except for our main character is still alive. So... Pearl is the main character, or not? Well, I, I don't think she's the American vampire. Okay. That but, would be sweet. But she does apparently survive the first issue against expectations. I think she's a main character. Okay. Yeah. And, and yes, Skinner Sweet is the main vampire, although he's not the vampire who bit her. He's the vampire who hangs out in the courtyard of her apartment building like a creep. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then the second half of issue number one is the Stephen King story, which is... 1880, the origin story of Skinner Sweet. He's being taken to prison by a Pinkerton detective named Book, and it turns out that the railroad magnate that he was stealing from is a vampire and bites him and accidentally gets some blood on him and he turns into a vampire. Yeah, it's a pretty fucking cool story, but 
Well, that's my opinion, anyway. What did you think? It was okay. I'm not sure that it's my speed. Spending the whole first issue on a woman who gets killed at the end, I guess it's good that she didn't get killed. Now that I see it again, she's alive at the beginning. She's obviously going to go on and be important in some other way. That felt manipulative and a bit gross to me. Gross, huh? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Extreme Victim Focus is very horror movie. Yeah. But it's a Vertigo comic book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it it reminds me of how um, in Jay and Miles, they always talk about like how a minor character who gets a name is doomed. Right. Yeah, because Chris Claremont will tell you what their college minor was and then have them eaten by a brood or something. <laughs> right. So this is a bit like that, the victim focus thing. The let's get to know her real well before the worst day of her life. Yeah, yeah. And then in the past, we have the Stephen King side of the story, which has to do with this criminal guy. And we know immediately because he wears his hat down over his face that he's the character that we know, but it's... It's a bit unexpected that he's the one who turns out to be, quote-unquote, the American vampire. After the first half of the issue, we didn't necessarily know that. Interesting. That's not something that I noticed because I had read about the series before I actually read any of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I sort of knew what to expect a little bit more than you did. This part is so cool where, like, everything is in, like, a red light. The room is red and the... And the, this the is the part where are all red. Pearl is invited to the, the private room or what have you at the big Hollywood party, and it turns out to be full of vampires. Yeah. Everything is secretly run by vampires. So, vampires. Sk- <laughs> sorry. So, so, Skinner Sweet, that guy's an asshole. Seems that way. I mean, he did something to Book's wife, but it is not clear what that was. He sent her gross wine. I got the impression that the wine was poisoned. That's a way to read it. It's sort of like the end of Seven. I don't know what happens at the end of Seven. I've never seen Seven. Nothing bad happens (laughs) at the end of Seven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and I guess, I think we see this bald dude again, so it's like, or maybe it's all vampires are bald. Maybe it's really hard to keep hair in when when you don't have any bodily functions. Right, you gotta have that that blood of life. I didn't know if if we were supposed to interpret that railroad baron ended up hanging out with Skinner Sweet later in life. Oh, I didn't think so. Okay, later in unlife, I should say. There are vampires. Yeah. So so right in there. (laughs) It's not like Cassidy. They're not shy about it. (laughs) Right, right. The art I thought was very... I would call it strikingly modern for a series that takes place mostly in the past... Yeah, that's true. I think it's very accomplished in its way. It is not traditional comic book art. Right, right. Which writer did you like better? Scott Snyder or Stephen King? On this story, I felt like Scott Snyder, and it didn't seem to me like Stephen King was checking the regular Stephen King boxes, which is perhaps a good thing. I don't know. Well, can you elaborate on that? Stephen King tends to generate realism through a number of devices, including brand names and realistic day-to-day complaints and maladies, neither of which really seem to make an appearance here. Okay. 
See, I thought that Stephen King's plot was a little bit more clean, mm -hmm. a little bit easier to read, less difficult to decipher. Okay. But I thought that Scott Snyder had a big advantage in that Pearl is such a charming character and he gets to write about her. She's the protagonist of, like, his section of the issue. Yeah. And she's much more charming than Book. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And there's a time skip here that I didn't entirely follow until the very last page as it's revealed that this writer gentleman, whose name is uh, Will Bunting, is actually narrating from 1925, having witnessed Sweet's origin in 1880. Yeah, and I think that you're sort of not intended to get that until the last page, where it like makes a big, showy effort to tell you. Right, as he is time-lapsed through the time, from 1880 to 25, and we see that the old version of him, the elderly writer, is the 1925 version of the character. Right. So, do you think you'll read any more American Vampire? I don't know. I guess it sort of depends. I could give it another chance. It depends more on Pearl's role than anything else. I was charmed by her character. I was annoyed when she seemed to be killed off to prove that this is a horror comic. And mm -hmm. then... The idea that she might continue in a protagonist role is of some interest. Skinner Sweet didn't really strike me as someone I want to read about for a, a long term. You know, I agree. I wasn't charmed by Skinner Sweet right away. I think I kind of really like vampire stories, though. Okay. So I'm into it. So that earns some points, for sure. Yeah. Especially, like, the whole, like, when they, you can kind of do, like, the Highlander thing with it, where it's like, you know... They've been around forever, so they have all this past experience. Yeah, that's true. With any <laughs> with any adequately complex vampire, you can do a flashback story anytime you want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, all right. So, this episode, we covered Sandman number 13. Uh, that's right. Which was called Men of Good Fortune. Mm -hmm. And American Vampire... Number one, which contained the stories Big Break and, and Bad Blood. Bad Blood. In our next Sandman episode, we'll be wrapping up the second half of the, or the third third, you might say, of the <laughs> Doll's House story arc. As Rose Walker encounters a hotel full of collectors. A serial convention. But first, join us next week when we return to Hellblazer and finally find out what happened in Newcastle and we get a taste of things to come. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a lot more episodes and show notes on every episode. You can find us on Twitter at Vertigize. Or you can talk to us on email, vertigize at gmail.com. And... We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions. Maybe we could talk about them on the air. That's a thing a lot of podcasts do. <laughs> or you can just chat with us about these comic books. If you want to rate and review on iTunes, we would certainly appreciate it. And subscribe. And as always, thanks for I didn't mean to sound pushy. You don't, you don't, you don't have to subscribe. But we'd like it. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, thanks so much for listening. Yep. Thanks, guys. See you next week.